0: Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. Decay and Renewal We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know how to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. I've always felt sickened by the inevitability of decay. This is mainly because of my memories of the way in which anything new that came into our house when I was a child was so rapidly swept into the maelstrom of damage and deterioration that seemed to characterize the way we lived. The groaning tension of those days still affects me in both silly and important ways. Here's an absurdly trivial example. My inward refusal to believe that it's possible to buy a brand new tin of shoe polish. We can't have used only one small tin of polish throughout my entire childhood, but that's how it seems. I knew the contours of that little container so well. Every time I cleaned my shoes, I I scraped and pressed the brush against the grooves on the inside of the tin, looking for just one more tiny smear of polish. It never occurred to me that new tins existed somewhere, full to the brim and shining smooth on top when you turned the little lever at the side and pushed the lid off. Something in me is still, after all these years, quite agnostic about the proposition the polish is easily bought and replaced. You see, the child in me knows that it cannot be so, even when the adult tells him not to be so silly. A predisposition to disappointment in relationships is a more serious legacy from that part of my life, but it operates in exactly the same way. Because of continual evidence that happy situations not only do not last but actually descend into conflict or sulking, I find it really hard to enjoy the good times without expecting or sometimes even provoking a negative end to the day or the trip or the game or the meal. That blinking little kid knows everything's bound to go wrong. Some shadows are very far-reaching and very damaging. What hope? Well, God is very good at transfiguration, defined by the dictionary as making more beautiful. My dreary conviction that everything is sure to end up horrible is not at all beautiful, but perhaps God is inviting me to redirect these intimations of destruction into an understanding of this passage from Romans. We are waiting for the time when there is no death and decay. We want to walk with God in the cool of the afternoon just as we were meant to. Until then we groan to God with groans that words cannot express. My childhood can never return in the form that I would have liked but maybe God would help me to set that aside and concentrate on the childhood of the world which will be renewed. Pray with me. Father, may the deep shadows of the past be dispelled by the light of your new creation. Amen. (laughs) China have been persecuted by the government because of their Muslim religion and their separate language and culture. Ernie Ray talks to some experts on China about the genocide which is taking place.
1: For more than five years, we've heard reports of forced incarceration, sterilisation, torture and mass surveillance of the population of about 12 million people. In December, an unofficial tribunal in the UK, chaired by Geoffrey Nice QC, found that the evidence they'd heard amounted to a genocide against the Uyghur people. The Chinese government rejects all accusations of human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Just who are the people at the heart of this story? And what are their beliefs, their language and their culture? Now, I'm joined by a panel of three guests, all very familiar with the Uyghur world, and I'd like each one of you to introduce yourselves, please. Uh, Rahima, why don't you start?
2: Thank you very much. Uh, I am Rahima Mahmoud. I'm a singer, UK director of the World Uyghur Congress and executive director of the Stop Uyghur Genocide.
3: And Ryan? Yes, I'm Ryan Thumb. I'm a senior lecturer in history at the University of Manchester and a specialist in the history and religious practices of Uyghurs. Joe?
4: Hi, yes, I'm Dr. Joe Smith-Vinley. I'm a reader in Chinese studies at Newcastle University, and my research has focused on the Uyghurs for 30 plus years.
1: We know that several religions are practiced in Xinjiang, including Christianity, but it is the Uyghur Muslims who've been hitting the headlines in the last few years. Rahima, you were brought up as a Muslim. How would you describe the Islam of your childhood?
2: For me, Islam is peace and togetherness and sharing one and another's experience. So I remember my father often repeatedly said, God loves those who are beneficial to others. And that is the teaching that I know about Islam.
1: Rahima, you've allowed us to share through your music and a little bit of Uyghur culture. What are we in danger of losing?
2: At this current moment, we are at risk of losing Uyghur culture altogether. The structural surveillance and the internment have made my people in the Uyghur homeland terrified to express their identity in any form. And if the world does not act soon, Uyghur music, art and the literature will simply disappear into history.
1: And you were relatively unfamiliar about things like the the Sunni-Shia split, for instance.
2: No, I read about it, but because we didn't have Shias in our community, we were all Sunni Muslims, I didn't know any other form of Islam. Joe, how would
1: you describe the Uyghur people, 12 12 million people roundabout? What sort of people are
4: they? Extrovert, flamboyant, sociable, kind, hospitable. People.
1: And it's important to say that they are ethnically different from the Han Chinese.
4: The Uyghurs had been in this territory, in the Uyghur homeland, for some thousand years, longer than the Han Chinese people had been there in any significant numbers. I would refer it to the first time I met Uyghurs, probably, in Beijing in 1988. So my university at that time was opposite a Uyghur enclave called Weigongtan. And there were many Uyghur restaurants there. And I met Uyghurs there for the first time, and I was quite astonished to to find them. They were Caucasian. They had high noses. They had deep-set eyes. They spoke a completely unintelligible language, unintelligible to me at the time. I was there to learn Chinese. They followed Islam.
1: I'm intrigued by the fact that the reaction from some Muslim countries has been very muted, in particular Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, have actually supported what the Chinese are doing. How do you account for that,
3: Ryan? I think it's fair to say that most of the Muslim-majority states have been silent or even uh, officially supportive of what China is doing to the Uyghurs. It's not a unique situation. Most states in the world, whether Muslim-majority or not, have been silent or supportive. So we can look to some states in Western Europe who... Base their constitutions and their societies on equality and human rights, and yet have been largely silent on this issue. And the pattern that plays out for the most part is that those states which have more economic power are more likely to speak out against what the Chinese state is doing. Joe, so what more do you think we could have
1: done in the UK or in the West?
4: Clearly, we we could have imposed much heavier sanctions if we chose to. We know that developed nations are able to impose very heavy sanctions on a state perceived to be committing human rights abuses because we are seeing it happen right now as we watch the whole of the developed world rally around and and impose very, very heavy sanctions on Russia. But it has not happened in the Uyghur situation. I would like to highlight something that Sir Geoffrey Nice QC highlighted in the delivery of the, the Uyghur tribunal judgment. It's unfortunate that no efforts have been made by those countries whose parliaments have found the PRC to be committing genocide in Xinjiang to have this crisis dealt with at the International Court of Justice.
1: It's time we heard from someone who has personal experience of what it's like in a Chinese government detention centre. Abdu'Weli Ayyub is a Uyghur scholar, poet and activist, now living in Norway. In 2013, he was arrested in Xinjiang under charges of inciting separatism, spying for the CIA and trying to overthrow the government. He says he was arrested because he was promoting the linguistic rights of the Uyghur people and trying to open kindergartens in his mother tongue. He spent 14 months in detention. He told me some of
3: what it was like. They put me in a confinement with a chain on my feet and handcuffed me and my hands and my feet connected together. In that case, I cannot go to to toilet. And, like, I stay in that position for a week. I couldn't wash my hands and I couldn't, like, eat properly. And they put you in something called the tiger chair. Yes, they put me uh, on uh, the tiger chair. It's uh, your hands and your neck and your feet connected to the chair. You couldn't move in that case. It is um, really hard to bear in tiger chair and, Another thing that, like, uh, in that interrogator room, there is, a, like, a torture equipment, for example, the electric stick, iron chains. The police always walking back and forth with electric stick, always, like, a singing, making noise, let you know that the danger is in front of you. And if you will not uh, follow the instruction, if you will not, Confess that electricity will be under your armpit. Do, do you think that the
1: persecution of the Uyghurs was cultural and ethnic rather than religious?
3: What I have seen, it is uh, cultural and ethnic because we documented 613 Uyghur imams and I haven't seen any because we have almost 1 million Han Chinese Muslims in Uyghur homeland. But I haven't seen any Hui Muslims' name on our list. I participated in the documentation of destroyed mosques. And we checked that, like in Urumqi, the Chinese style mosque still exists and decorated very beautiful, but 16,000 Uyghur mosques destroyed. It is not because of Uyghur is Muslim. It's because of Uyghur-speaking Muslim. If Uyghur became Chinese-speaking Muslim, if Uyghur follow Chinese-style Islam, and it will not a problem. Like The problem is stop Uyghur to speak Uyghur, stop Uyghur to practice Uyghur culture, and stop Uyghur read their own uh, literature and follow their own intellectuals.
1: You're now living in Norway, so you've moved away. You're not living in China anymore. But the impact on what happened on you must have been enormous.
3: Yes, uh, the physically I released from the detention, but uh, psychologically it's really hard. I can't stay alone at home. The silence makes me terrified. I cannot be in silence. I'm afraid of darkness I'm afraid of police car and I'm afraid of police uniform. My hands become wet and my heart beated very quickly. And like, uh, I could not control. I always feel that I'm under the watch. I'm under the surveillance. All the time I feel that there is someone is watching me.
1: You've devoted your life to... Supporting and promoting the
3: Uyghur language. Why do you think that is so important? Because it created who am I. Like my father read a lot of books to me when I was young under the oil lamp. And then uh, my mother taught me how to sing. And I listened a lot of Uyghur stories. Do you feel that the language is part of who you are? It is uh, not a part of who am I. It's the whole of who am I. It is my spirit. That was Ali Ayyub.
5: will prevail, He will hold me fast.
6: I could never keep my hold through life's fearful pain. for my love is often cold,
5: He must hold me fast. You mm-hmm.
0: Kenneth Stephen has written a series of essays about islands in the Hebrides. Today he talks about Jura. You can hear the full programme on BBC Sounds.
7: The island of Jura is long. There are 24 miles of it in the end from top to bottom and perhaps half a dozen or so at most from west to east. It lies in the waters beyond the wild and lonely edge of South Argyle taking the shape of a long fish. Its name is supposed to have a Norse derivation and mean the island of Deer, but I've long had my own theory. Jura is perhaps best known for the three bare granite heads of mountain that rise from among her many miles of moorland. They're known as the Paps, and I believe that's the best clue to the real derivation of the island's name. Many years ago, I visited the neighbouring island of Colonsay with a good friend from Norway. To reach Kollensee, the ferry from Oban ploughs the channel to the west of Jura and passes much of the island's west coast edge. It's strange and wonderful to experience those long miles of solitude from the water, for there is not one single sign of habitation to be glimpsed the whole way. Only the dark shadows of caves and stretches of rugged shoreline that might never have been visited. As we stood on deck, marvelling at the three great bald heads of the paps, I told my friend about the theory concerning Jura's name. At once she turned and looked to me and said, But the shape of the mountains resembles an udder, an upside-down udder, and the Norwegian for udder is Jure. The Norsemen won fame because of their seafaring prowess. Many another island was given a name very clearly because of its shape or look. Why not with Jura? The island they knew because it resembled an udder. I once visited the primary school on the island to talk about my life as a writer and to try to inspire the children with poems and stories. I was reading from one of my poetry collections all about the natural world and I had the folly to ask if anyone had ever seen an otter. I will never forget how those youngsters fell about with mirth for several had seen an otter before leaving home that very morning. By the time they had finished regaling me with stories, I had the impression that you had to watch where you put your feet because of the sheer numbers of otters on Jura. Perhaps there are more otters than people. There's only something over a hundred souls living permanently on the island, and certainly a great many more deer and, without doubt, more adders. This was an island made for snakes. To begin with, most of the island is left to loneliness, and that loneliness is composed of deep bracken and even deeper heather. Photographers come to the island in late spring to take pictures of the adders as they rise to one another in their mating dances. There's a wonderful account of Jura written by the Scottish explorer Martin Martin. He himself hailed from the Isle of Skye and was a Gaelic speaker. He knew and understood the places he was visiting just a handful of years before the United Kingdom came into being in 1707. Martin Martin made a famous voyage to St Kilda and wrote in depth of the customs and life of the inhabitants. But he also travelled out to many other Hebridean landfalls to compose accounts of daily life and diet and much besides. These accounts were gathered in his work, a description of the western islands of Scotland. And it's important to remember that Scotland itself was still very much a divided country at this time the highlands and islands were closed off to explorers. Venturing beyond the lowlands was a dangerous business. This was a wildscape ruled by the clans and by wolves. Certainly the biggest barrier to travel was fear itself. Martin Martin writes about both Jura and the neighbouring island of Isla. But poor Isla, flatter as it was and with many bits of bogland, was seen by him as very much a poor relative. It seemed to be that the mighty windswept paps brought a clear air to enliven the denizens of Jura. The isle is perhaps the wholesomest plot of ground either in the isles or continent of Scotland, as appears by the long life of the natives and their state of health, to which the height of the hills is believed to contribute in a large measure by the fresh breezes of wind that come from them to purify the air, whereas Isla and Gia on each side this isle, are much lower and not so wholesome by far, being liable to several diseases that are not here. The inhabitants observe that the air of this place is perfectly pure from the middle of March till the end or middle of September. It's the very north of Jura And what lies beyond, I've come to find most alluring. Completely uninhabited, a rubbled landscape of headlands and high hills, every bit as wild today as when Martin Martin visited 300 years ago, all of it waiting yet to be explored, the domain of herds of wild goats and sea eagles. Here at the very north end of Jura is the Bay of Pigs, No homage to any missile crisis or to Cuba, but a name derived from the Gallic, for a sea pig is a whale, and this water is busy with porpoises and dolphins and whales. To the north, opposite the Bay of Pigs, a sheer wall rises to the main peak on the neighbouring island of Scarba. Here some of the first Celtic Christian monks must have landed to build their beehive cells, having made the short crossing from Ireland. Here, too, is to be found something that must have caused them to tremble and wonder in equal measure. For this stretch of water is the Gulf of Corrievreckan. Martin Martin offers a better account of this, the third largest whirlpool in the world, than any I could hope to provide. Between the north end of Jura and the Isle Scarba, lies the famous and dangerous gulf called corrie About a mile in breadth it yields an impetuous current not to be matched anywhere about the island of Britain. The sea begins to boil and ferment with a tide of flood and resembles the boiling of a pot and then increases gradually until it appears in many whirlpools which form themselves in sort of pyramids and immediately after spout up as high as the mast of a little vessel, and at the same time make a loud report. These white waves run to two leagues with the wind. Before they break, the sea continues to repeat these various motions from the beginning of the die of flood until it is more than half-flood, and then it decreases gradually until it hath ebbed about half an hour and continues to boil till it is within an hour of low water. This boiling of the sea is not above a pistol shot distant from the coast of Scarba Isle, where the white waves meet and spout up, they call it the Kiliach, that is an old hag, and they say that when she puts on her kerchief, i.e. the whitest wave, it is then reckoned fatal to approach her. Notwithstanding this great ferment of the sea, which brings up the least shell from the ground, the smallest fisher-boat may venture to cross this gulf at the last hour of the tide of flood, and at the last hour of the ebb of flood. The gulf hath its name from Brehkan, said to be son to the king of Denmark, who has drowned here, cast ashore in the north of Jura, and buried in a cave, as appears from the stone Tomb and altar there.